The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death, because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. Which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost, because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled, and what does God do? He promises to rescue them. 
But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, the hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. Okay, so now that everybody's got that, we'll pass out papers for the quiz. You guys should be good. Good morning again. We're going to begin in the first 
book in the Bible. So if you want to take out your Bibles, there should be one in the seat pockets close to you, or you can always pull up your phone. We're going to begin in the beginning at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And as you guys make your way that direction, thankfully our friends at the Bible Project, by the way, that video was courtesy of thebibleproject.com. If you haven't checked out the resources, a wonderful website, a great non-for-profit group that puts those together. Uh, But we saw from the overview that this book is the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. But beyond that, this word, which is the first word in the book, the word in Hebrew is uh, bereshit, it means literally in the beginning. And so we find that this book, as you guys make your way that direction, is the first book written by Moses around 1650 B.C., which means the book that we hold in our hands is roughly 3,700 years old. And so passed down through uh, generations, kept in meticulous order and detail. In fact, uh, throughout history, this book is found to be uh, inerrant to 99.9% what it was originally written and passed down. And so we have this book of Moses, or the first book of what is called uh, the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, or the book of the law. And so anytime we see in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament of the books of the law, they're specifically speaking of the books of Moses. And again, this book, this Hebrew Bible that we have, that we call our Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. And so when we were in the New Testament previously, I would refer back to words from the Greek, but when we go to the Old Testament, I'll refer to words in Hebrew because predominantly, with the exception of a few chapters in the book of Daniel that are written in Aramaic, because Daniel was in Babylon where Aramaic was the predominant language in that area. Outside of that, the rest of your Bible of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so we have the opportunity to go back to it and look at the words that were used to better understand what God really intended. And so we find this book of beginnings, it's called, or as I mentioned, the word in Hebrew, uh, Bereshit, it means uh, the beginning. And what we truly find is in the book, we have the beginning of, of all things, with one exception. But we have the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of family and culture and sin and industry. And the only thing that's lacking in this book of beginnings is the beginning of God. <laughs> The beginning of God is not mentioned or detailed or or even given to us. Why? Because, well, in part, God has no beginning. God has always been. God will always be. And in fact, when we go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, speaking of Jesus, who was God, we're told there that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is eternal in the heavens. No beginning, no ending. And so God has no need to detail for us His beginning because He has no beginning. But outside of that, when we have the Bible in our hands, please understand that this Bible is, in fact, autobiographical. God is the ultimate author. The Spirit has inspired the authors to record this. And you know that if you pick up an autobiography at any bookstore or online, uh, you never find the author going to great lengths to explain to you that they exist. Why? Because the author obviously exists. They're the one doing the writing. So there'd be no reason for the author to go to great lengths and spend chapters proving their existence because they're the ones doing the communicating to you in the first place. And so the existence of God is outside of time and space because He always existed. And yet, as we go through this book, we find that throughout it, it contains 66 books compiled together. 
40 different authors spanning 1,600 years from the Old Testament all the way to the book of Revelation. And yet, throughout it, there's a common theme. And the theme is the grace and the mercy of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Throughout Old Testament and New, it is this promise of His coming and then the fulfillment of His coming and the promise of His second coming. And so if you want to take the Bible and you want to sum it all up together in a quick little uh, 30-second bit of information, you would say that all the Bible has to do with one person, Jesus is the Christ, and two different events. His first coming and His second coming. That's the Bible in summary. So when we look at the book of Genesis, perhaps you've asked this question, uh, and it might be this, can I... Can I trust it? Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust that, that this book of Genesis is literal? Can I take it literally, or is it merely just a, a compilation of stories and analogies and fables all put together to give us some bigger understanding? Can I take it literally? And so what I would say to you if you ask that question is, that's not really the question uh, that you should ask. Instead, ask yourself this. Can I trust that Jesus is the Christ, first of all? You can go throughout history and you can you can clearly show that Jesus of Nazareth did exist. There's no one to refute that, that Jesus walked on the earth. Historically proven, multiple sources all over the world, no historian would say Jesus did not exist. What you can also do is clearly show that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed throughout his ministry to be God in the flesh. And so he claimed to be the Christ or the Mashiach. The real question here inside of this is, if he claimed to be God, did he in fact raise from the dead three days after he was executed, brutally murdered? And so what we find also historically is there were hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw the risen Christ. These men and women who saw the risen Christ were so sure that they saw Jesus that this group of ragtag misfits that scattered when Jesus was put on trial the first time after they had seen the risen Christ, were so sure Jesus was who he said he was that they were willing to die for that, to be martyred as a result. And so what Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 concerning the resurrection is this, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, what it means is that you and I are still dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. That, sure, we can follow after him, great guy, claim to be God, but if he stays in the ground, it means that you and I are still in the ground with him. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19 is this, that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. That if in this life the only hope we have is in a dead Savior, then we're of all men to be pitied. What in the world are you doing here on a Sunday morning? Why did you get out when it was this cold and drag yourself to church to worship a dead Savior? But verse 20 says, now Christ is risen from the dead. This written by a guy who was persecuting the church until guess what? He met the resurrected Christ who changed his whole life around and pursued Jesus with everything he had. He said, but Christ is risen and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But Jesus has risen from the dead. It's irrefutable. And if that is the case, if you believe Jesus is the Christ and that he did raise from the dead, then his claims to be God are true. His claims to be God are accurate. Which means you don't have to take my word for it or anyone else's word for it 
on whether the Bible in the Old Testament is literal and can be taken as that, you should take God's word for it. <laughs> take what Jesus had to say, which is interesting because we go to Matthew chapter 19, and here's what Jesus says as he's being questioned. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let, man, let not man separate. Jesus quoted from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He didn't say, let me tell you a story about the Old Testament, a, a parable or a, an allegory. He said, no, have you not read what the Word said? He believed it literally. If you skip ahead to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus questioned about the resurrection and about His return. What He says in verse 37 is, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus spoke literally about the days of Noah that we're going to look through when we arrive in chapter 6. Jesus spoke of those as if they literally happened. And He was God in the flesh. He is God. Continue with me to John chapter 8, one last place. In verse 58, as Jesus, verse 56, as Jesus is speaking now to the Pharisees, he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus spoke of Abraham beginning in Genesis chapter 12 as if he was a real man because Jesus saw him face to face. They had conversations. Abraham saw the Christ and, and they saw one another, had a conversation together, a relationship. And so what we find is Jesus took these words literally. There's no better proof than that, that we should also take the words of Genesis chapter 1 literally. All that to say, let's begin in verse 1. That reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we stop right there, Here's the thing. If you struggle with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to struggle with the entire rest of the Bible. <laughs> it's going to be difficult for you to believe anything from this point forward. But I will say, if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, then all the rest of the Bible is going to be very believable to you. Now, this first word that we see in the Hebrew, in the beginning, it's the Hebrew word, Bereshit. Okay, because you all came out on a Sunday morning when it's frigid cold and people less holy than you didn't make it out, but we're going to work on some Hebrew together. You ready? We're going to start with this. Uh, say it with me. Be. Oh, that's weak. Start with me. Be. Rashid. Congratulations. You know a word in Hebrew now. See that? It's worth showing up. So you guys learned a Hebrew word. This word means in the beginning. The phrase be means in the. Rashid means the head of, the start of, the beginning of. It, it denotes authority. It denotes precedence. 
And so no matter whether you're an old earth, young earth, new earth kind of a person, it doesn't really matter how you view history. When I was a kid uh, growing up, I was told in science that the earth is 4 billion years old. And now, as I researched this week, I found the, the earth is now 12 billion years old. So somewhere in the last 30 years, the earth has aged 8 billion years. I, don't, I haven't been in school that long ago, but somehow that happened. But it doesn't really matter where you want to put the peg. What J. Vernon McGee would say is wherever you want to drop the pen in history, uh, God was before that. God was before that. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God existed before wherever you want to place the existence of the earth. And so we see God having precedence over that. So, Bereshit Elohim. This word for God, it's translated God in our Bible, but it is the word in Hebrew, Elohim. Now, in Hebrew, the word El is the word for God, E-L. Elo, when you put O-H on the end, that is uh, coupled together. That's two. But when you put the phrase uh, O-H-I-M, it means more than two. And so the word in Hebrew for God is actually not El, but Elohim, meaning more than one. Now, an interesting thing to note about the Hebrew language is they define plurality based upon the pronouns and the verbs you use with the word. What I mean by that is uh, if you see plural uh, nouns and or plural verbs and pronouns used with the noun, it means it is plural. However, if you only see singular pronouns and verbs used with it, it is a singular noun. All that to say. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, what you'll find is every single case when the name Elohim is mentioned, every verb, every pronoun to go along with it is singular, meaning they viewed God as one God, even in plurality. And so what you find is even in their Hebrew language, God was three in one. He was Father and Son and Spirit. The Trinity exists from the very beginning of our Scripture. From the very first words in the Bible, he is compound unity. Now, the next word is, in the beginning God created. This word is the word bara, and it's a specific word for creation, which means to create something out of nothing. And the phrase bara is only connected with God. No one else can bara. No one else can create something where nothing existed other than God. Now, there are other words for creation in Scripture. Uh, for example, the phrase asa is used. That means to create something from existing materials. So you and I can asa. We can take existing materials and we can make something out of it. We might take credit for creation, but the reality is we had material to work with. We had something to work with from the beginning. God can do either one. In fact, you all are proof of his Asa creation. He took existing materials out of the ground and he formed your bodies. That's the reason our bodies that carry us around are made of the same 17 basic elements that are in uh, dirt. So you bunch of dirt clods are here today because God Asad, he, he put you together, formed you dirt balls, and so now here you are on a Sunday morning with the breath of God in you. But it began with him taking existing materials. But previously, he borrowed. He spoke creation into existence. 
Now, in science, what you know, if you look at this, there are certain things that define our universe, that define natural law. One of those is the conservation of matter. And what this says, you guys probably already know this, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, The conservation of matter states that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That matter just is. And yet, when you study the scientific theory of the Big Bang, what they propose is that nothing collided together with nothing, and out of that, everything was created. That's the Big Bang Theory. I don't know about you, but I don't actually have enough faith to believe that. I don't, I don't have that kind of faith to believe that nothing combined together with nothing and that out of it, everything was birthed. It violates the very law of science. And so what it tells me is something supernatural must have happened. Something outside of nature must have influenced creation. It speaks of bara that God spoke into existence out of nothing. He created everything. That's easier for me to believe than nothing combined together with nothing and everything was birthed from that. So as we read Genesis 1.1 that states, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's not really a matter of science that's the struggle with this verse. I would submit to you the issue with this verse that people have is actually a matter of accountability. That when we look through these scriptures, what you're going to find is the Bible is not a science book. God didn't write it intending for this book to be a book of science. Again, this is an autobiography, his relationship with us. It's a love letter for us to understand his mercy and his grace in the person of Jesus. But when the Bible comes into the scientific realm, at no point in time can it be denounced or refuted. In fact, if you think about things historically, As a human race, for thousands of years, it was widely believed that the earth was flat, right? We can nod our heads and agree upon that. And yet, in the book of Isaiah, written by God through the pen of Isaiah, around 700 B.C., so almost 3,000 years ago, here's what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So here we have, at 700 B.C., God making it perfectly clear that the earth is not flat, that he sits above the circle of the earth. Now, going back a little bit further, Job chapter 26. Again, remembering many people believing the earth was flat, Great scientists believed that. Not only was the earth flat, but it was also held up in in Indian culture. For example, the earth was held up by giant tortoises. Giant turtles are carrying around the flat earth through the universe. That's what they believed for thousands of years. Uh, Alongside that, while we snicker at giant tortoises, think about this. The Greeks, for all their science and all their understanding, you know what they believed? That the earth was held up on the back of Atlas. That Atlas held the earth in its position. And yet, in these historical books written by God, Job chapter 26, thousands of years ago, this is what the Lord said. He, God, stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. You see, when the Bible comes into the scientific realm, it can never be disputed. While the Bible's not a science book, it is, it is completely without 
error in the realm of science, even if we can't see it. And so what we find is the real issue, and this is what Paul was driving at, the real issue isn't an issue of science. I'll read for you. It's an issue of accountability. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. This is what Paul says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What Paul wants to make clear is because we don't want to be accountable, we instead worship the creature in place of the Creator, who is God Almighty. But yet, we can look around at nature. We can look all around and see God's handiwork. It's obvious that there is a designer all around. I mean, looking at the, the magnificent bodies that do carry us around, and the heavens, and the, His creation, it's obvious that He's here. Even if we can't see Him, we can see His work. By this I mean, I don't, uh, I'm not able to see gravity, but I know gravity works. If you want to believe it, I'll go outside, watch me try to dunk a basketball. It'll be obvious at that point in time. You don't need to know that gravity pulls me to the ground at 32.2 feet per second per second. You can just see gravity and its effect on my body. And daily I see more and more gravitational effects on my body, even though I can't see it. I can appreciate the way it affects my life. Similarly with God. Even as I cannot see Him, I see Him all around. Now, also, as we consider the scientific realm, the, the popular theories like evolution that are taught in our school systems, here's the thing. Inside their scientific world, one of the most basic principles is the second law of thermodynamics. Again, you guys probably have this down pat, but let me just uh, mention it for you. In layman's terms, the law of entropy says this, that in nature, things always go from order to disorder. The idea is things never go from disorder to order. Things always go from order to disorder. They break down over the course of time. And so, by way of example, the way I would explain it, it's like this. Um, If I wanted to show you my tremendous artistic ability, I could take a, a sheet of plywood and I could put it in the back of my truck and take thousands of marbles and then begin to intricately lay out all the marbles and turn it into a beautiful horse for you all to see and witness. But because it's such a cold day, I want to make sure everyone can see my artwork. And so I I begin to drive my truck all around Coles County. And I'm showing everybody this beautiful horse that I made. And eventually I whip my truck back into Woodlawn Chapel like Ace Ventura, like a glove. And as I do, um, what would you expect to see when you looked in the bed of the truck? Would you expect to see the marbles even more intricately put together? Now they're 3D. Look at them come together. No, you would expect to see the biggest stinking mess of marbles you've ever seen. Completely disordered. Why? Because they went from order, where a creator had an influence on them, to 
disorder. It has to have an outside influence in order for our universe to be put into order. And yet here's the evolution, a complete contradiction to the very laws of science that supposed scientists seek to uphold. So what I would submit to you is, outside of all that, is it really comes down to this. If Genesis 1-1 is true, if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you and I are accountable to our Creator. And that's the part where the pushback comes. We don't want to, in our flesh, be held accountable. We, we refuse to believe this. We only want to desire to be accountable to ourselves. What we want to believe is that out of the goo, you and I came into the zoo, and now it's up to me and you what we should or shouldn't do. Right? That's the idea. That's the issue. We want to be in charge, but what we find is when we put ourselves in charge, societies completely crumble. There's no moral standard any longer. There's no one to define clearly what is right and what is wrong. And so this is what we see. And yet, what David says, and it's so simple, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, is this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. (laughs) Look to the sky. Look at the amazing design that is all around us. I can't look at the night sky and not be amazed. I can't look at the mountain range and my breath not be taken away. I can't look at the ocean and not just be blown away by the goodness and the vastness of God. I can't look at basic things like photosynthesis. I mean, the fact that that I breathe out the very carbon dioxide the plants need and they return, give me the very oxygen that I need to breathe. I mean, there's so much design included in all this. How then can we deny his handiwork? And if he is truly who he says he is, and he is, then we are accountable to God. That's the reality that we have to face. Now back to Genesis, last verse for the day. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This first phrase to begin verse 2, says this, the earth was without form and void. Again, before you guys eye roll about too much Hebrew. Here's the Hebrew phrase. It's a tohu vabohu in the Hebrew, without form and void. And so the question is, at what point in time in the creation narrative did God create the angels? You ever wondered that? I've wondered that. Now here's just a possibility. I'll throw it out there and you can decide what you do or don't believe with this. Um, But I believe between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1-2, God created the heavens, including the angels and the earth. And at some point in time, uh, God created them, not tohu vabohu, not without form and void. God is a God of order, which is interesting because in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, this is what Isaiah says. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This phrase, who did not create it in vain, is that same Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu. 
So God created the earth not without form and void. It became without form and void. This is what the writer is insinuating for us. And so what I would say is it's very possible, if not likely, that somewhere between these two verses, uh, something like this happened. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, which says this, O how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down uh, to the ground who weaken nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who will see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness? The wilderness, just like the seas, are always a picture of chaos or anti-creation. Those that want to do away with creation. God is a God of order and creation, whereas the enemy always wants to reduce things down, have it to be out of order to remove creation. Now, one other spot to go, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, which states this, Speaking of Satan, thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. And so we see quite possibly the fall of Satan as well as those who decided to fall with him who was cast out of the garden of God who was given the ability to rule over the earth. Then guess what happens? It's removed only for us to enter onto the scene, and what does God have us do but gives us the command to tend and rule over the earth. Now you can see the conflict beginning to build as we approach towards Genesis chapter 3. And so we find very possibly this is the point that they were created and he was cast down. Now all that to say, at the end here of this verse, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, the earth was dark. God is a God of light. God is also a God of order, not the God of chaos. And so throughout the next verses, we're going to see the days went as God ordered the days from evening to morning. Isn't that interesting that God used that phraseology, not from morning to evening, but from evening to morning. The idea is from disorder to order. God was reestablishing, recreating order where order was lost. And he did it by, look at this, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. But the Spirit of God began to move and to work. The, the Ruach began to work 
his way around and over the chaos. If you take anything away from today, what I want to share with you from these first two verses is this, that for any great work that God is going to do, it always begins with the moving of his spirit. As the spirit of God begins to move, as he begins to go over the the darkness and the blackness and the void that, by the way, our sin created. My, my sin is what got me in this spot. And yet by his spirit and by his power, he begins to move and work in and on and over the chaos that seems is happening all around me. And then what happens is light. The very next thing we see in scripture, the light begins to turn on as he moves over the the chaos that we've allowed to be created in our life. And here's a promise from scripture, important for us to remember each of us here. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. If you don't have this one highlighted, uh, please do that. Ephesians 2.10 states this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not an accident that any of you are here today. God intended for you to be in this spot. You, you had a choice to make whether to get out of bed and fight the cold and get here, and yet here you are, and God's promises, he has a work for you. You are his workmanship, his poema, his, his poem that he's writing in your life. You're his workmanship. And yet at some point in time for each of us, what happens is chaos begins to take over. The darkness begins to seep in, and yet his promises by his spirit moving over us, beginning to stir things up in us as he begins to do a work in our lives. As he goes over the, the, the word of God, Ephesians 5.26 says that he cleanses us with the water of his word. And so as the word of God begins to finally make sense for the first time, the, the darkness begins to go away, the light begins to flip on, and we realize that God is up to something. He's up to something in our lives looking to do a tremendous work. We are his poema, his workmanship. And so, Father, we thank you so much. A lot to consider today in two short verses in Genesis. And yet, thank you for the power that exists in your word. Thank you that you are not a, a God of destruction or chaos, but a God of order and light and grace and mercy and love. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you have begun to do in your spirit in this room. You're up to stuff, Lord. It's obvious you're up to things in this place. I mean, three years ago, there wasn't anybody here. <laughs> so it's clear you're up to things, Lord. <clears throat> not just in this building, but in the, the hearts that inhabit it. With the folks that are watching us online, thank you, Lord, for online services we can, we can share with one another. Father, we just pray that you would turn on the light. It seems so very dark at times, so very chaotic, so much like there is no way that you can make anything good out of this. It looks like a without form and void mess in our lives. And yet by the power of your spirit, you're so close to beginning a work of transformation. Lord, please transform lives today. 
please continue to do a work in and on and through us that if you would have told us about it years ago, we wouldn't even have believed it. Excited to see what you're up to, Lord. Thank you for not giving up on us. In Jesus' name, amen.